You can take your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel in the 6th chapter and locate way down in the 6th chapter, the 46th verse. Um, Kent and I will tell you one thing or two to make you feel a little bit better, make you and Barry feel a little bit better. Um, so when the bucket idea came out, you, I think you gave me a call and asked if we could be a collection center for that. And obviously we said yes right away. And so I called your partners there to your right, uh, um, Charlene, and said, we're going to do this. And, and she's like, well, how many buckets should we get? And I said, well, let's just get two. To start with, you know, like like if we can get two buckets full of, of, of toiletry supplies, you know, in a week, we'll have done pretty good. Uh, a week later, Charlene, how many did we have? Twenty-two. Twenty-two. So uh, so not only did y'all shoot a little bit low, but I shot a little bit low too. And so we uh, of those one seventy-five, this church itself collected twenty-two of those. Um, and so we are very grateful for for all of you just reaction to that and to hear the stories that those moved on. So we're very, very proud to be part of that. The truth of the matter is some of God's greatest teachings are really his simplest ones, right? They're simple in understanding. The problem is they're very often complicated in application. The things God tells us, they're not just, you know, trigonometry. And I know for some people like Randy, trigonometry is simple, but that's not for me. So I'm just picking something that I would struggle with. But, but you know, the, the, the understanding of Scripture is quite simple in, in cases. It's just that application, putting it into practice in our lives, is where things get complicated. But I find it interesting, especially in our day, people love to mine the Bible for what they call golden nuggets. You know, they, they dig deep into to passages and into, into scripture and into verses and, 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 down, and they drill down into, you know, the meaning of one word and, and they can write volumes and books on, on just one simple word and understanding that and they dig and dig for the wisdom that's found in the scriptures. And they get caught up in things like biblical codes, you know, like there's these, all these secret codes found in within the Bible and numerology and secret formulas and, 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 and just trying to predict the future and, and, and just digging and digging into the Bible for all that kind of stuff. When much of what I think God wants us to know is like right there on the surface, that, that it's not really hard to dig it out, that it, it's plain and simple. Um, but, and, and all that digging and all that, and that mining and those looking for those, those special little revelations that, that just that you might find, that's really not discipleship. That's not the way of the disciple. The, the disciple is looking for the plain meaning, uh, as, as, as Dr. Nanidi or Don likes to say a lot of times, you know, the main things are the plain things and keep the plain things the main things. And, and just those, those real simple teachings. And we're coming to a, a scripture today as we... Think about those three bridges as we've been talking about being one, you know, being a disciple in 2022, what that looks like. And um, helps if you turn this thing on. Or maybe not. There we go. I got it. There we go. We've been talking about these three bridges, you know, and, and getting from the land of death into the land of discipleship. And, and, I, and I've broken that down a little bit because just how we address things today a little bit. And, and we want to get to that final bridge, cross that final bridge. And I want people to really be able to evaluate themselves and, and ask the question, can I answer, can I determine whether I've crossed all the way over? 
And in the passage today, the Bible gives us really the answer to the evidence of discipleship. Uh, there's, there's one thing that really, if you find this in your life, you can say, I'm pretty sure that I've crossed all the way into the land of the kingdom of God or the land of discipleship. This comes from Luke Gospel, the sixth chapter, <coughs> starting with verse 46. If you like to follow along with me there. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house and, and, and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of the house was great. Now, this may sound similar to you. This is, this, is a, a, this is kind of Luke's telling of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the way Jesus kind of closes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And he, he tells this same story. You know, the wise man built his house upon a rock, right? And the rains came down and floods came up and the house stood firm. We've all sang that song or many of us have sang that song in, in our childhood. But what I want you to understand is if you're asking this question, and I hope by now that you're asking this question, trying to determine if you've, if you've crossed all three of those bridges, if you've paid the cost, if you've decided who Jesus is, you've decided what the Bible is, the Word, inspired Word of God, and you're willing to pay the cost and hope that you've paid the cost and, and are a disciple of Christ, how can you know? And, and I think this passage gives us the answer, and, and that is obedience is the evidence of discipleship. I mean, the, the sentence, I don't know how you make it more plain than Jesus said there in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you proclaim your allegiance to me? Why do you say I'm the king, Lord, right? And you don't do what I say. I mean, I can't make it any simpler than that, can you? I mean... If you're going to follow Jesus, if Jesus is your Lord, if you will proclaim the ancient Christian proclamation, Jesus is Lord, which has been the proclamation of Christians since the first century, if you're going to say, Lord, Lord, then the expectation is that you're going to obey him, that you're going to do what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Back up. Can you take me to the, the three bridges right fast, please? Because what I would say and, and how I've been saying this is if we say, Lord, Lord, then we don't get all the way over to discipleship, then we're stuck somewhere in, you know, just believer island, like I believe in Jesus, Jesus is God, but, but you don't obey him. And so you're stuck in the middle of the stream somewhere, or, or maybe even you believe, well, this is the word of God, and, and you say that favorite saying that I've heard people say since I've been a pastor, now going on 18 years, I know the Bible says, but then you're on that second island, right? You know, nominal Christian island, like, like you know you have a belief in the scriptures, you have a belief in God, but, but you're not paying the cost. You're not willing to follow. You're not really obeying. You know what the Bible says, but we don't do it. And so we're stuck somewhere. And really, the, the evidence of getting all the way across those bridges is, is that, that uh, obedience to the Lord. 
And so that's why I say obedience is the evidence of discipleship. It may be the number one evidence of discipleship. That may be that, that fruit that Kenton was talking about, that, that when we grow up, that we bear fruit. And, and, and that is certainly one of the fruits. The fruit of obedience is certainly one of those things that, that is paramount. And, and that's what Jesus is saying, at least here, that this is the main point of this passage. And that, that obedience is really the first, maybe the primary evidence of discipleship. And so I want to go through that question a little bit further and break down the scripture a little bit more and then and kind of ask ourselves some questions to, to figure out where we stand on the whole obedience thing. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the expectation of obedience. So that verse says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And I think that lays out a clear expectation of God, right? That he expects us, if we tell God we're going to follow him, then he has this expectation that we're going to obey him, that we're going to do what he says, that we're going to follow his examples, that we are going to be obedient. And so God seems to have an expectation of his disciples to simply do what he says. Now, I want to talk about this teaching that has been, at least in my life, it was popular. I, I don't hear it quite as much as I did when I was younger, but it's certainly, I think, still out there. And, it, and it's the atrocity of the teaching of carnal Christians or backsliding. Now, you may have heard these terms used in church a lot of times, that, that there's this idea that there's these carnal Christians. People who are Christians... People who believe that Jesus is God and that the Word is the Word of, and that the Bible is the Word of God, right? But they live in carnality. And that word carnality means they live in their flesh, right? They they do what they want to, and, and so that there's this group of people who are supposedly followers of Christ, who live like they're not followers of Christ, and we and we've made this term called the carnal Christian, right? That that you can be a Christian but live like you're not a Christian, but you're still okay to go to heaven. That's dangerous teaching. The, the cousin, the kissing cousin of the carnal Christian is the backslidden Christian, right? That, that there's this, that this, the way this plays out in real life is there are people who you know, followed hard after God, and then they start backsliding. They start acting like them old, their old self, their, their pre-saved self, and, and, and that carries on. Now, what concerns me as we've developed this idea and, and, this, and we've talked about this and we've talked about the carnal Christian, and, and most of the time it's preached against trying to get people not to be carnal Christians, but the fact that we teach there is such a thing, I'm afraid we have made excuses for people to be comfortable in their disobedience. Instead of warning them and prompting them to be living as disciples. And so when we teach that as a possibility, what we're doing is confirming people, well, don't worry. You can act whatever the way you want to act. You can live as a pagan if you want to, but in the end, you're still going to go to heaven. And I think that's dangerous teaching. I think that's something we need to be very, very careful about. Because what does Jesus say here? Why do you say I'm your Lord and you don't obey me? Right? That, why are you acting like a carnal Christian if you say, I am your king? I think that's where one of those 
phrases that you've heard me say from Hebrews chapter 10 that, that as we see the day drawing near, we're supposed to be doing three things, drawing near to God, holding fast to our confession, and spurring on others to love and good deeds. And that's where the spurring on comes in. You must start to obey. You must start to act like what you say you are. Um, if you say you're going to follow Christ, then you must obey. What I'm afraid of, what I'm really afraid of, is that we may actually be affirming people in their false conversion. That, that people have, have kind of said they believe in Jesus and kind of said they believe in the Bible, but they're not willing to pay the cost. They're not willing to obey. They're not really willing to submit to God fully. And what we say, well, you've come part way. You've crossed two of the three bridges, and we're okay with that, and you just stay there in the middle of the stream. And when the flood comes, the people in the middle of the stream are going to get washed away. And I think that's what we have to be very careful about. Now, does that mean disciples don't stumble and fall? Well, no, that doesn't mean that. We all stumble and fall. The question is, do we wallow in the mud once we stumble and fail? And I would say probably not for very long. Maybe for a season, this undefined length of time that that we may be like the prodigal son and and wallow with the pigs for a bit but at some point if we have the holy spirit in us we're going to do what the prodigal son did and come to our senses right and get up dust ourselves off and get busy about following jesus i can tell you from personal testimony that that there was a time in my life when i stumbled and i failed and I did a little bit more than a little wallowing around in the mud for a year or so. But one thing that was present in my life during that time was there was a constant conviction in my life that what I was doing was wrong. I did it, and I did it in open rebellion to God. I knew what I was doing, but I never doubted what I was doing was right. I never doubted that what I was doing was wrong. I, that I, I, every time I chose to wallow in the mud, there was this conviction in my heart that I was doing wrong. And thank the Lord, thank God, that there came a time when I believe Jesus put his foot down and said, no more. That's going to end today. And, and I started following. I picked myself up. I came to my senses and said, it, it's time that I now start stumbling in the right direction. And that is in the direction of following Jesus and not just wallowing. And so Jesus clearly has an expectation of our obedience. But the question that I want you and I to ask today oh, and is this. Do you have a personal expectation of yourself? To obey God, his word, and his examples. That's really what it comes down to. We know, and, and, and the world knows generally, what God expects of us. The question is, what do you expect of yourself? Do you have a personal expectation of yourself to obey the word of God? Or you just, well, I know that's what God wants, but... I'm cutting myself some slack, <laughs> you know, you know that, that, I, that I'm going to make excuses for myself, and then I'm going to listen to the excuses I made for myself, and, and I, really don't ex I really don't have a very high bar set for myself, right? 
I know who I am. I know what my struggles are. And if I can get like 33% of the way there, I'm going to be satisfied. Or what expectation of obedience do you have on yourself? If you were to put in percentages, would you say, oh, I expect myself to be in the upper 90% when it comes to obeying Christ? Or 50%? Or, you know, as long as I'm passing, I'm shooting for that 70 mark, right? <laughs> just, you know, D for done, right? You know, just get it done. You know, I'll be happy with that. I think we really have to consider what our expectations of ourselves are when it comes to obedience. Jesus's is pretty high, and I would suggest that we need to obviously keep raising the bar of our own expectation. Now, I want to flash back real quick to one of the very first sermons I preached in this sermon, in this series, and just remind you, and I said that I think this is the very first sermon of this year, I believe. Remember this, discipleship remains grace-dependent. That no matter what expectation we set for ourselves, we're always going to rely on God's grace to make up the difference. Because we're always going to be less than perfect. And so discipleship isn't about reaching perfection. It's always going to be grace-dependent. But we should have some pretty high expectations of ourselves. Uh, And certainly the Lord has those expectations for us, but we will always remain grace-dependent. And I think it's in that striving that we come to realize the need for grace. It's when we say, you know, my expectation is 100%, and I realize in my best week I deliver about 82.5%. That means I need (laughs) 17.5%. I need some makeup. Maybe some weeks I only make 50%. And I realized, wow, God had to fill in the other half for me this day, this week. Maybe there's weeks when I'm below 50%, and I see God's grace making up that difference. Whatever that difference is, I can always rely on God's grace to make up the difference. But at least I'm aware of how much grace I need when I set the expectation for myself. But I will always remain grace-dependent. The second thing I want to dig down into is the wisdom of obedience. So we talked about the expectation of obedience Now let's talk about the wisdom of obedience. And Jesus goes on to finish out the story. There's two people in the story, right? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, this is verse 47, I will show you what he's like. He's like the wise man. He builds his house upon the rock. The storms come. They rage against the house and the rocks. The house stands firm because it was built on a good foundation. Then there's the foolish man who built his house upon the sand right and it goes on in verse 49 but the one who who has heard and has acted according who has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation the 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 torrent came burst against it and immediately it collapsed the foolish man builds his house on the rock and so so the really the question or, or the teaching and the understanding is is really i think pretty plain here too god's way is the best way God's way is the right way. There's wisdom in doing things God's way. And I think that's a universal truth that we understand. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do you believe that God's instructions are truly wise? Do we have a heartfelt conviction that God's way is the best way? Maybe it's because of his perspective, his knowledge, his understanding that he has that we don't have and that we can just say, you know, I really, really, really believe if I did everything God's way, 
then my life would be, to quote a, 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 a author, the best life I could have, right? The best, my best life now is found in doing things God's way. Or do we sometimes believe that God's ways are out of date, out of touch, and he may not even be paying attention to what's going on. He may not even notice what we're going. And that's what a lot of people argue about God's way when it comes to the scriptures today, that they're out of date, they're out of touch, and God's ways aren't the best ways anymore. They might have been good for the first five centuries or maybe ten centuries, but, but we're modern man. We've just seen this week how modern we are, how far we've come from the days of, you know, clubs and swords and, you know, kingdoms divided against kingdoms, right? Nothing's new under the sun. And in our modernness, we may be dumber than we've ever been, right? And so God's ways, if they've ever been the best ways, they're still the best ways. And so when it comes down to this, what do you really believe about God's ways? Do you have a conviction that that is the best way? And really, the truth of the matter is, that's the teaching of these verses. That's the teaching. That's the upfront teaching of this scripture. God expects obedience, and we should obey because God's ways are the best ways. Obedience is the evidence of our discipleship. But I want to drill down just a little bit more into understanding this question. Why are people obedient? What is it about us that drives us to be obedient to someone? And, and, I, and I really think there's two factors or two components to obedience that, that we have. And that is trust and fear, or fear and trust. It reminds me of uh, my dad. When I was a kid, one of the things I remember about my dad is his belt. Right? My dad had a big broad leather belt and on the front of it he had this great big buckle and he wore this belt all his life and and, and the, it was a big square buckle and in the center of that buckle was a silver dollar and I think I, I'm not sure but I, I think it was like a what would that have been a 1776 silver dollar which would have been the 200 year anniversary no 1976 silver dollar right that's when I would have been about six years old and he'd gotten this belt buckle with this silver dollar commemorating the 200-year anniversary of America. Anyway, I, I remember that belt with that thing on it. You probably can figure out why that was a very important part of my childhood, remembering my father's belt. I remember on times when he would reach for the belt. And, 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 I, and I, it was like Wyatt Earp reaching for his six shooters, you know. And I was like, ah, he put his hand on the belt, you know. That belt was uh, the inspiration for a lot of the obedience for me, right? Especially when I was younger, because I feared my father. I knew he'd use the thing. Now, I'm going to be honest. He didn't use it nearly as much as he probably needed to, right? But he used it enough that I knew he would, and I had a fear of it. And so when he told me to do something... I often thought about the belt. But there's a part that I grew into probably last year. As I got older, more mature, I began to realize the wisdom of my father. And that much of the advice he gave me in life was really good advice. 
And I started obeying my father, taking his advice. As I got older, when I wasn't an infant anymore, when I wasn't a little child, but as I matured, I started to do it because I really trusted him. And I knew he wanted the best for me. And I knew his advice, he was giving me the best advice he could. And I knew he had experience that I didn't have. I knew he had perspective that I didn't have. And I knew he did things I, that I didn't understand. And somewhere along the way, and we've all probably experienced this at some point, that, that, that my fear of God, of my father, and, and the obedience that, that I gave my father because I was simply afraid of him or, or, or revered him was replaced by trust. And so the, the first thing I want us to consider is this, this, the trust of obedience. Because this is really where the rub starts to come in. Because we love verses like Romans 8, 28, where it says, And we know that all those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who have been called according to his purposes. We love that verse, right? That, that, that whatever I go through is going to work out for good. But do we really believe that? Do we really trust that? In the moments of suffering and pain, when things aren't as good as that we want to, do we, do we trust the, that doing and handling those circumstances the way God tells us to handle them? That when we're told to forgive those who have offended us, when we're told to, to love our neighbors as ourselves or to love those, our enemies and turn the other cheek, when we're given all these instructions about how to deal with the world as it is, do we trust it's going to work out for good? Do we really believe doing things God's way is the best way? We love Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But there's conditions in those verses that say, if you seek me, if you will do things my way, that, that then it's going to turn out good for you. But if you don't do it my way, well, the Babylonians are coming, right? And so really, one of the components of obedience, one side of that coin on that belt is trust. And, and so I ask this question of us, do we have a personal, deep, deep conviction, personal conviction that the living, that living as God prescribes will result in blessing our ultimate good? Because I think that's what's a question a lot of times. And, and, and I think even the way I made this statement reveals part of the problem that we may agree that if we did things God's way, it will result in our ultimate good. But too often, we're concerned about our present good, right? What do I want right now? If I do, God's, if I do things God's way, well, ultimately, sometime in the future, sometime, uh, sometime down the road, this is going to work out and be good. But right in this moment, his way doesn't seem like the best way. It doesn't seem like the comfortable way. It doesn't seem like the easy way. It doesn't seem like the way that I really want to go. And so we start to question the trust. Can we trust God? And really, if you dig into Genesis 1 or Genesis 3, when, when Satan comes to tempt Adam and Eve, this is the heart of the question. G, the, Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and he asks them what, about this command that God's made. And, 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 and Eve says, you know, well, if we eat of the tree, we're going to die and, and Satan's response is, you're not going to die. Here's what God knows. That as soon as you eat of that fruit, you're going to become like God, knowing good and evil. And the implication of that statement to Eve is, you can't trust God. He's holding out on you. He knows if you eat that, you're going to be like him. And he doesn't want you to be like him. That this, this, 
these rules that he's put on you, this advice that he's given you, this expectation of obedience to not eat of that fruit comes from, you, from a distrustful place that God's holding out on you. And, and you can't trust what he said. And we know the story. They believe that lie. They were convinced that they couldn't trust God and his commandments. And so they did in the moment what seemed pleasing to them in that moment. And quite literally, hell followed after. And we've been paying that price for a long time. And so we have to have these deep convictions that God's ways are wise and that we trust him because he has knowledge and understanding and perspective that we don't have. The other side of that coin, though, is the fear question. And I want to reshape it out of fear and into responsibility. That there's a responsibility to be obedient that you and I have. That there's, a, that, that, that there's something we have to know. And this comes from Matthew's Gospel, the 11th chapter, verses 20 through 24. I just want to read a passage there, and I think it illustrates the point I want to make. Jesus is, is uh, speaking, and he says, And he began to denounce the cities which, which, in which most of his miracles were done. Because they did not repent. He said, Woe to you, uh, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda. For the miracles that had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, uh, Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashing. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And what I think Jesus is teaching in this passage is that there's a responsibility of knowledge, that there's a responsibility we have to be obedient, that when God tells us stuff, when God teaches us, when God shows himself to us like he did to these cities, we're responsible for that. That, that these cities like, like Capernaum, that there was miracles done and God showed himself there. And God's saying, you're responsible for what I showed you. And you didn't react appropriately to what I showed you. You're going to pay a penalty for that. And, and I would tell you and I, the fact that you and I know who Jesus is, know what the Bible says, that we have been blessed with, with information, that we've been blessed with knowledge, that we've heard the gospel, we know the truth, we know today if nothing else, and I'm sorry to tell you this, you know today that God expects you to obey him. You've learned that today. And you will be held responsible now for that knowledge. And if you don't act on that knowledge, then, then Jesus is going to say, it's not because you didn't know. You know. You were taught. I was there. <laughs> you know, what's the day? February 27th. When you heard this truth, and now I'm holding you responsible for that. The backside of responsibility, and responsibility is the word I'm kind of substituting for fear, that, that when we're given knowledge, when we get, gain understanding about who God is and what he expects, we're answer for that. And that should cause us a little bit of, maybe a little bit more than a little bit of trepidation. That these, God's going to hold me responsible for what he shared with me, what I've heard, what I've learned, what I've experienced by him. So I want to ask you one final question. 
Do you understand that you've been entrusted with truths that not only benefit you, but everyone else you come in contact with? If you know the gospel, if you understand the gospel, you've been given a truth that would change people's lives. And you're responsible to handle that truth. And that's where the and comes in. And that you have a dual responsibility to adhere to the truths that you have as well as share those truths with others. And so when Jesus says, go and make disciples, you know, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you, that's to us. That's a teaching. That's a, that's a truth that we have in a direction. And the expectation of God is that we're going to obey. The question is, what's our expectation about that? Do we expect the same thing he expects? Do we believe his ways are the best ways? Do we see them coming from wisdom? Do we trust God in his teachings? And do we expect ourselves to be obedient to him? That is the way of discipleship. And so I'll leave you with that final uh, one last time, that very powerful probing question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Because that's the way a disciple.